Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. The podcast, of course, is called Be Real. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer, and joining me on the other line from Brooklyn, New York, I call him by my name, but he insists on calling me Ben Solo. It's Noah Ballard. What's up, buddy? Hey, pal. What an introduction. It's a taste of a couple of the four movies we're going to be talking about on today's show. Yeah. We... We said that we were done for the year, I believe. Did we not? Yeah, but then, as predicted, uh, Christmas Vacation has turned to me just sitting on the couch watching movies. Sometimes with people, sometimes without. And I've gone to a lot of movies, too. I've got that movie pass. Uh, I've been meaning to ask you about movie pass. Maybe we go to our ethos corner to talk about it. Great. And maybe we get a sponsorship out of it in the ethos corner. Let's go to where we talk about ourselves for a couple minutes. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. Noah, movie pass. You've got it. Is it worth it? So I signed up for it thinking that like in New York City you pay $17 for a movie anyway. So why don't I just get this $10 a month thing that lets me go to a movie every day uh, per Mm -hmm. month. Um, And I hadn't really, I got it. Saving you like what, $60, $70 in the month of December? So far. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I got it and like failed to register it uh, for a little while and then finally did and you know saw like a movie a month but now that we're in christmas break and i'm hanging out with my brother here in brooklyn uh it's like well it's four o'clock like maybe we should go see another movie kind of thing so i think i've seen so i saw all the movies we're going to talk about today uh three of which i saw on movie pass and then um, I also saw It's a Wonderful Life uh, with my movie pass playing in IFC. Theater? Yeah, an old 35 millimeter print of It's a Wonderful Life. And it was great on a big screen. Um, Harry Mary, what an experience. I just thought of you and your Jimmy Stewart impression. I, did, I don't remember how to do it. It's a lot of side mouth talking. I'll just uh, say that. You want the moon? <laughs> Well, let me throw a lasso around. I can't do it, Jimmy Stewart, but you can. Just try well, it. Why does it matter? You want the moon? I'll throw a lasso around it and, and pull it on down here for you. That's great. Thanks. You're, you're terrific with impressions. I, I don't have any impressions. That's not true. You do a pretty good Woody Allen, a pretty good Jagger, if I recall. Oh, that's just a physical, uh, physical embodiment of, uh, of One him. One could argue that that's harder. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, as for me... Just back in old Nebraska, I have talked probably five to six cumulative hours about Star Wars The Last Jedi, which either makes me very, very prepared 
for our 15 to 20 minute discussion or it'll make it impossible for me to condense my thoughts, so. Okay, let's run. Yeah, so I guess the only real linking feature in this episode is the fact that it's Christmas break and these are movies that we saw. Yep. And we are going to talk about four on this episode because why the hell not? We have four to discuss. So why not? It's the, the Christmas break pod. <laughs> there you go. We're going to talk The Last Jedi. We're going to talk Call Me By Your Name. We shall speak of I, Tanya, And we shall try to speak of the Netflix original Bright. Yeah, if we can. We're going to take them in that order, yeah? Sounds good to me, buddy. That's the okay. order that I have them pulled up in tabs on IMDb. Perfect. Uh, so, uh, Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, the eighth canonical Star Wars movie, the ninth in total, came out uh, a couple weeks ago now. But I think we both saw it just this past week. So, we were confronted with a barrage of uh, poor gifts and early think pieces but i think now we're firm firmly into spoiler territory don't you think yeah if you haven't seen star wars the last jedi by now uh there's not that many spoilers though it's true there's not a lot of like twists right which is kind of funny Mm -hmm. and kind of fun and kind of fresh but like maybe a little annoying chance why don't you synopsize for us (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we pick up basically seconds after uh, The Force Awakens ended two years ago. Rey takes two steps toward Luke Skywalker and offers him that lightsaber from a little bit closer. He promptly throws it off the cliff of that island where he's secluded himself. And so begins their kind of like, will he will he or won't he train me uh, kind of story. And then meanwhile, really the, the fulcrum of the... Uh, Last Jedi is a chase across the dead void of space, kind of like a Mad Max sort of approach where people veer off into these other plot lines that tell you more about the universe. Um, so the Resistance is running from the First Order. They are almost out of fuel, and you know Finn wakes up, and he's got to go do a little mission uh, to try to stop the First Order from tracking them. Uh, Poe Dameron, played by Oscar Isaac, is very heroic uh, from the jump. And yeah, so begins this story about all these this galaxy of characters that all have to re-meet while the movie, I think, very thoughtfully considers both what it is to use the Force and what it is to be a rebellion in a way that I think perhaps the Star Wars movies never have considered. When I found you, I saw raw, untamed power. And beyond that, something truly special. has always been there. But now it's awake. And I need help. Yeah, interesting. Um, let me ask you, Chase, for the, for the purposes of our discussion here about the Force, do you believe the Force is biological or do you believe it's 
as Dave Matthews put it, the space between. Um, what I don't understand the Dave Matthews part. Well, that's how sort of Luke Skywalker describes it. It's like the order and the balance between things. Mm-hmm. And the prequels would have us believe that the Force is something in one's blood. So what do you oh, believe, yeah. Chance? Oh, God. I definitely side with the more like metaphysical, universal, um, you know, command strip that is <laughs> the Force and not a fucking uh, inherited genetic trait. There's no, like, proteins in your blood that uh, enhance your force. I reject that, and I think that Ryan Johnson has as well. I don't, I mean, I don't know that it, I I like to think of the interpretations of the force as sort of like your sex of a religion, you know? And I believe uh, Ryan Johnson is not an orthodox, but he's more of a reconstructionist Jedi. Love that. And that he believes that it's it's the universe and it's not internal. And he shows us, I think, a lot of good examples of that in ways we haven't seen before. Whereas, I would say, if you're comparing this movie to a J.J. Abrams, don't you feel like J.J. Abrams just as good as like, he's like sort of you doing Jimmy Stewart. He does a really good impression of things, but like whether or not it's original, I think... Ryan Johnson's a little more comfortable in that territory. Yeah, I mean, I saw this movie with my buddies Ryan and Tim, and just walking out of the theater, Tim, like, on the ball, was just like, don't you feel like this movie was kind of J.J. Abrams handing Ryan Johnson the lightsaber and Ryan Johnson tossing it over his shoulder? <laughs> which, I, yes. which I think is a, a very quippy and funny. I don't think it's a full rejection of Star Wars, but no. I think there's a lot of questioning, and it's quite an off-speed pitch which i think bothers turbo fans and is very appealing to those of us who love star wars but don't love it that way well because i mean it's it's funnier it's a funnier movie there's like gags Mm -hmm. like you know pretty quickly there's going to be gags like in the scene where poe dameron great name by the way Mm -hmm. um calls up uh general hux general hux and he like goofs him yeah I'll he like gives him a goof for General Hugs, right? And then it even yeah, I, I thought that was such a funny like, oh no, like Ryan Johnson's really got creative control, doesn't he? But in a way that it's like making like Kathleen Kennedy and all like the keepers of the Star Wars franchise on the executive studio level like happy. Yes, and I think bits like that also show that this movie is self-aware. I mean, really, it's hard not to be self-aware when you're making the 10th movie in a mega billion dollar franchise but his self-awareness right. is so for the right reasons i think like when donald gleason as general hux is like giving his orders like he's just like annihilate their ships obliterate their fleet and demolish and in the back of your head you're thinking like is the only job of a first order commander to come up with synonym verbs for destroy and then you realize right. as poe is fucking with him that he like he stops and he's like i used all my fuck, I use all my best verbs and this guy can't even hear me. (laughs) And it's like that sort of like wink that's not cynical or hateful or too fan servicey. He just like really hits a note, I think. Well, he's trying to make the point that like General Hux is like a bit of a cuck. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And like Poe Dameron. 
Yeah, but like the, the the movie knows that too, and like the at the end of the day, Adam Driver is like as Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo is like in control of what the dark like army here does, the yeah. First Order. But General Hux like is just a sort of like bureaucratic placeholder for like the things getting done here on a sort of military level, right? So when this movie sort of hits its climax, you need to have General Hux be like, I don't think we should exercise this extreme level of sort of hubris here. And then Adam Driver just throws, has to throw him to the side and then like do his crazy thing. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Adam Driver, I think he further proves that he is an incredible actor well, I think this movie is interesting because it both has actors in it that are smart enough to go like, this is a Star Wars movie. I'm going to be really good in this. And then it has like Benicio Del Toro, who's like shooting this between Heineken commercials. And <laughs> yeah. like, he's like, I'll do a stutter. But like, that's that's about all I'll do. I'll walk out of the prison cell in exactly the same walk I did in Usual Suspects. Right. Yeah. I can unlock the door. What the fuck? <laughs> that's exactly right. There's a lot of superlatives I can give this movie. This I think this is the most good actors who've ever been in a Star Wars movie. Yeah, I mean, there's incredible performances from, like, Laura Dern. Yep. Carrie Fisher, like, sad to see her leave this plane of existence because she's pretty amazing. She's pretty good. Uh, reprising her role as Leia Organa. Even Mark um, Hamill, who I think benefits hugely from Ryan Johnson's imagining about what that character is like and the different shades and layers to Luke Skywalker. He is allowed to mold himself around that performance in a way that if the movie asked Mark Hamill to just like say, I am the last Jedi, he would be terrible. Right. Yeah. It's that's the, that's the, I mean, one problem. That's the thing. This movie is sort of treated as a series of like interesting problems that you have to solve. And I think both on the thematic level, you have like all these things I sort of listed before of all the sort of tropes you have to hit. But you also have to deal with the fact that the legacy of this movie, these movie series, uh, this movie series is that Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill is not a very good actor and he's sort of an annoying character. Yes. Like Luke Skywalker constantly, his constant crisis is like, I don't think I should do that. <laughs> like, I don't think I should do the thing the movie should like wants me to do. I just yeah. want to get some power converters. Right. What's that flashing? What's that flashing? And this movie's like, please, for the love of God, just like train her in being a Jedi so like we can get this series moving along. And Luke's thing has to be, I don't want to train her as a Jedi. I had a bad experience the last time I tried to do it. <laughs> Luckily, his voice is a little bit deeper than it was in 1977. Right. But I think the way that this movie solves that is particularly interesting. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that I went nuts for the Yoda cameo. That scene is that might be the best directed scene in the movie. I think I think that's a great example of how these these new movies are trying to service the aesthetic and some of the themes that were left behind of the original trilogy and the scene where Yoda reappears to Luke much more in the vein of that classic sort of 
trickster Rafiki sort of character that he was in Empire as opposed to the uh, miniature ninja that he was in the prequels is beautiful. And he get, and the way he giggles over that like that minor key flourish of music where you think for a second, like, is Yoda evil or does he just know Luke better than he knows himself? It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, this examination of the Force as a Jedi, like, can never really die, but it takes them a lot of energy to sort of, like, reappear. Right. And, I mean, like, the climax of the movie sort of calls into question, like, what Luke has left in the tank. Yes, absolutely. And the answer to that is, like, pretty astonishing. Mm Mm-hmm. This sort of definitely reminds me more of Lord of the Rings two towers than it does remind me of uh, Empire Strikes Back because you have like such a cool sort of helms deep yes. at the end of this one. That's yeah. it's a little less like Luke, I am your father and mm-hmm. more sort of, you know, a Bernard Hill sort of losing hope and then seeing Gandalf on the edge of the mountain. There you go. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, we're already... A way is into this. What else should we get to before we rate it? Any other big I points? Really I really liked. I really. I. Everyone's been talking about her, so this is nothing new. But I just want to ratify the fact that uh, Kelly Marie Tran as Rose mm-hmm. is pretty great. She is, um, and I think that at first I didn't quite see why she seemed kind of extraneous for relatively extraneous plot line but again if the whole movie's if one of the movie's major considerations is what does it mean to successfully rebel and continue to propagate hope against the onslaught of the first order and the coming darkness her saving releasing those creatures and saving finn at the end she's already seen the kind of what kamikaze war does with her sister and yeah her sister's a hero but like what did it get her save the people you love this movie's funny for me because it's sort of the the it's certainly political on a level because it's both kind of feminist and sort of dare i say like hillary clinton-y where it focuses instead on like this 1% that has always sort of existed in the Star Wars universe of all these people where destiny and fate and lineage and crazy sort of scandal has linked all these people together. And this movie sort of shifts to the anybody can find themselves in the throes of destiny and Mm -hmm. have to act, you know, in a way that you know, they just make their best judgment. Like the, I really liked the John Boyega sort of um, Finn subplot with Rose because it's desperate people just like trying to find this guy and like, you know what? If this other person's good enough, that's that's fine. But it's just people making choices and not because you know they're special in some way, other than the fact that they chose to rebel. Right. And it's very much, it felt like a protesty kind of movie in that way where, you know, you have Finn and Rose who neither of them, they were both just extras in other movies, but in this particular series and in this threesome here, this trilogy, uh, they're just common people thrust into spectacular circumstances. And then not to give away too much about the climax of this movie, 
But it's also sort of revealed that Ray herself may not be from special lineage, even though she kind of has that Luke Skywalkerian, you know, genesis to her character of being sort of on this dusty planet alone. Yeah, the movies to this point have been sort of uh, quietly aristocratic or monarchical about who... Especially in the prequels. Yes. I mean, that was the whole point of the prequels, right? Um, You never spend any time with people like on the ground in the prequels. Yeah. Whereas these movies, I think maybe positively inspired by Rogue One, have started to take more interest in, you know, just the, the people in the background. Yes. Which I think is promising in the macro, too. I mean, if we are, in fact, going to do this one Star Wars movie a year until you and I are 50 years old, if we have to do that... I would rather we have these sort of interesting digressions about, uh, you know, janitors and maintenance folk and not have to do Jedi or superhero every 12 months. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's an interesting turn. And it's also sort of a feminist film in the fact that I really liked the subversion of Poe being like, listen, lady who's in charge, you don't know how it's actually happening. Like, I need to step up and make my own plan and, you know, go around you because I'm a man and I know how these things work. Haven't you seen a Star Wars movie before? Right. And this movie, the fact that Poe Dameron, like, sets up this alternate plot line, in fact, like lessens their chances of pulling off the thing that they're trying to do because of course the the lady in charge had a plan that like made the most sense yes and what better person than laura dern she to deliver that line where she's where he's like just tell me what the plan is lady like you said and she's like i know people like you i understand and like it's such a good she's just making those lines sing as she's just like staring right through the flyboy it's very good And Ryan Johnson's, like, tricky enough that it's like, yeah, she is a dick. Like, why doesn't Poe just come and save the day? Why don't you listen to Poe? Like, we like him. And then at the end of the movie, you're like, ah, shit. Like, looks like I'm a little bit sexist. Great. Well, and they both learn a little bit about the nature of rebellion from each other. The choice that she ultimately makes is a very Poe choice, but the choice for the larger group is her choice. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes you do have to, like get on that plane of let's do something risky for maybe a one in a hundred chance of it succeeding. And it's Star Wars movie, so of course it works. But there are other times where you need to be more thoughtful. And I think that is sort of the approach to making this movie in addition to the choices this one character does sort of, you know, uh, embody. Right. Should we turn toward a rating, buddy? Yeah, let's do it. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good, good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good, good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad, bad is easy, too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. 
Good Bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make no essay. I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, Bad Good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, but it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I really like this movie. I have seen it twice now, and I think it has a level of depth to it that quite possibly no other Star Wars movie possesses, frankly. I mean, I walked out of it, and for the first like day, I was like, I think I really like that. I think I really like that. And then I kind of just began to gravitate toward all the different things that were going on, which, I mean, most Force Awakens, while I think is very good, is kind of like, deserves an instantaneous reaction. Do you like the way J.J. Abrams rekindled nostalgia and advanced a few new characters, or don't you? And this one just has so much more going on on i think the performances are great i can't say enough about adam driver uh i can't say enough about ryan johnson showing us a visual language that we've never seen in a star wars movie before with the face-offs and the throne room battle and all these things were just like oh wait you don't have to direct a star wars movie exactly like george lucas did no you don't um this is a good easy good good but too long but a good good yeah, it, it, a little fat could be trimmed, but yeah, I think this is definitely a good good. I know there have been some hot takes that have taken this movie down a little bit, but I don't agree. I think it's pretty good, and I think if you go see it and you, you like our opinions about things generally, you'll probably like this movie. All right, buddy. Now, call me by your name. So, call me by your name just came out, what? few weeks, few months ago, limited release, now wider release. Yep. Um, Army Hammer, Timothy Chalamet, uh, star in the adaptation of the 2007 book of the same name. Um, and this, yeah, this movie sort of picks up uh, one summer. Uh, the book posits that it's southern Italy. The book, the movie posits that it's northern Italy. Oh, my. Um and yeah, it follows this one summer where Elio, played by Timothy Chalamet, sort of falls in love with older graduate student Army Hammer, who may or may not be gay or may or may not be into him. Either one of them could may or may not be gay. It's they, But they, they form a relationship, and it's sort of this chronicles the relationship and where it goes. And yeah, it's directed by uh, Luca Guadagnino, right? Who's taking the place of um, Merchant Ishmael Merchant of the Merchant Ivory films? Uh, but James Ivory has written the screenplay here, as he typically does. Professor Perlman, thank you so much. So nice. confident. I can show you around. That'd be great. Thank you. What do you do around here? Read books, transcribe music, swim at the river, go out at night. Sounds fun. All right, later. Just watch, this is how we'll say goodbye to us when the time comes. Later. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, we'll have to put up with him for six long weeks. It's a pretty faithful adaptation uh, in some ways that I won't... Uh, I mean, in the ways that it is not a faithful adaptation would be a spoiler to the the movie. And I think maybe people haven't seen this one, so maybe we keep the the ending in check. Sure, sure. Um, but it is, I think, a faithful adaptation of the relationship and the lead up to it and sort of the emotion behind it and how that manifests physically. Yeah, because most of the movie is a very kind of intimate evolution of their relationship and the way that they size each other up for probably like an hour and 15 minutes before one of them makes a declaration that kind of seals the deal, right? It's a very intimate and I would dare say quiet examination of both coming of age and also coming in love. I don't think you have to dare too much to say it's quiet. It's There are many wordless long takes of somebody looking out a window at somebody else's the line of somebody else's hip or somebody watching somebody else across the 14th century fountain <laughs> as right. they watch them walk away it's a beautiful movie and they live in this beautiful house yes on uh, these beautiful grounds outside this beautiful town mm-hmm. it's always visually sumptuous there you go that's a good a very good word uh well, I alluded to this a little bit on our year-end episode, but I find both the performances from Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer incredibly specific, very good, but also good in the sense that they cannot exist without each other, these performances. I think that they perfectly inflect one another. One, you know, Army Hammer, the movie all but compares him and his, you know, all six foot five of him to the sensuality of like the statues that he's studying with Michael Stuhlbarg that summer. Um, And he is statuesque in so many ways and he's kind of immovable and a one-way street in like a way that the movie posits is very American. You know, that kind of like later... Or he'll just like walk into a room and already know how to speak the language and play the card game that they're playing in the town square. And then you have Chalamet, who's so much more devious and constantly for me is kind of tiptoeing on the line between wanting to be the center of attention and not wanting to be seen at all, which is a very, I think, nuanced teenage phenomenon. I love the performances. I think the performances are both great. My only sort of question about the performances, while I think they have a lot of chemistry as actors, I don't necessarily think I felt that they had any sexual or, like, romantic chemistry. Oh, yeah? Like, it was fun to watch them duel each other sort of in an acting way. Mm -hmm. But compared to the book, I think the choices that the actors made to portray these characters, like, didn't necessarily feel to me like lovers like i don't think i understood the relationship as much as i did when i read the book which is of course the case because like the book is more internal and whatever but i don't know like the the the, the famous peach scene oh yeah uh, is totally it, it happens beat for beat the same way in the book but it's totally like my read on it quote unquote is so much different between the two scenes that i like don't i don't Get it. Well, let's break down the scene for a second. Why do you think that Elio cries after he, like, takes the peach out of Army Hammer's hand? 
This is an interesting question. I th- I think because I, this is a weird way to put this, but the movie is just sort of like obsessed with the fact that like Elio's libido is nuts, you know? He's like he'll, he'll he will fuck anyone or in this case anything. Um, right. And I think that that both you know, he is kind of this like in like manically internal character. I think sure. that um I think that he both feels a lot of power from his youth, but he's also, you know, embarrassed by his libido. What do you think? Am I way off? So, well, so I, I had the same read as you did that he is like sort of ashamed that someone has like seen this like darkness in him, what he perceives as his own sort of carnal sexuality. And he's ashamed of his libido. But in the book, the choice is that he is, he feels that army, he feels that Oliver has seen him in such a way that is so emotionally moving to him that he cries because, you know, that he made love to this juicy peach was such a, like, that Oliver saw it and wasn't disgusted by it. Like, that moved him to tears, which is certainly not the same choice as the movie. But I also then, the relationship feels different to me and maybe not as connected. I hear what you're saying. Whose performance do you think has more to do with that lack of transparency. Well, that's the thing. I think Army Hammer read the book and was like, I know how to play this guy and then played him. And Timothy Chalamet read the book and was like, that's interesting, but like, I'm going to do something else. And I think because of that, the relationship like doesn't, like it makes more movie sense, but it doesn't necessarily make more emotional sense to me as a viewer trying to understand these two men and ultimately like what I was left with. And I'll completely grant you that I'm alone in believing this because other people in the theater that I was in were like bawling, crying by the end. And I was sitting there going like, I'm not feeling it. Like I I was entertained by this movie. Sure. But like I wasn't moved emotionally by it. The most moved I was was the incredible Stuhlbarg monologue at the end. That didn't get you? Oh, that was that was definitely good. And it also is like, if there's any spoilers in this movie, it's sort of that. And like the bigger sort of commentary about men's sexuality and how it's fine to like not everything be black and white. Mm-hmm. Which I think is great. And like I thought that made it like a really sort of woke movie. But in terms of um, like emotional level stuff, like sure, that scene's a great scene, well acted. The whole movie's great. It's well acted. But like for some reason, like I wasn't as an audience member connecting with it on sort of an emotional level. And I think it was because I was confused as to what the relationship was between these characters. And that ultimately sort of kept me from connecting with uh, the protagonist, Elio. Sure. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't really see how I can or like want to disagree with you on that front. Because it seems like very, I mean, you're, you're moved or you weren't. I mean, I was expecting, I think this movie has a very, very deep well of feeling. But it is not as accessible as something like Lady Bird. It, I mean, it doesn't feel familiar in the way that that movie does 
uh, just with sure. like teenage relationships. Um, and I think that part of that may be that that Chalamet character, who's also Chalamet's in Lady Bird, where he plays the kind of like Howard Zinn toting unreadable mask of teenage cool. And I think he brings some of that same inscrutability to this role. I was pleasantly surprised though, how different the two characters are. They are. And it shows that Chalamet is not like a one note kind of actor. And it's nice that these sorts of movies are being, being made like intelligent love stories, you know, but I think in a year of already pretty intelligent love stories, parenthetically ladybird as you just discussed i don't know that this one is as good sure so what would you rate it i think it might be a good bad i think it's a well done movie i think it has some great performances in it it's like i said it's a visual feast um but ultimately i don't think it has a lot of rewatchability because of the fact that it is so obscure maybe in like the intentions of some of the characters I mean, it's well done and it's worth, it's a movie worth seeing and should awards be bestowed onto it, I would not be surprised. Yeah. But in that sort of Oscar push sort of way, it is, it's an unscrutable film that I think is made for a very specific audience and I don't know that I am that person. I think this movie is good, good. I understand the issues that you might be having and of course you can't you just can't begrudge someone on our second good you know for being like it i it just didn't affect me the way i thought it would so i won't begrudge you in that way um yeah but i agree it's it's longer than you think and quieter than you might think um but i think that the characters are so intricately drawn uh, that that's I think why I would rewatch and maybe I will be bawling at the last scene the next time I watch it it strikes me maybe that that's maybe me too we could reappraise yes <laughs> let me know if you rewatch it and you cry and then we'll talk about it again yeah we'll, we'll yeah we'll have another podcast just dedicated to the reappraisal of call me by your name there you go uh, if you find yourself for instance making a Nancy Kerrigan face as though you were just whacked over the knee uh, we'll talk about oh it again my God. let's move on to uh, Craig Gillespie's I Tanya shall we yeah that sounds like a, a plan indeed so this movie is this movie out everywhere yet I don't know it was at the Alamo draft house that I saw it in nice um, running up that credit card bill again <laughs> no I have the the movie pass Oh, but did you order any of the foods? Oh, of course. Did it was you very get, expensive. Did you get a soft-boiled egg and an apricot juice at the Alamo Draft House? I did not. Um, no, I, I thought we were talking about I, Tanya. We are. I mean, I saw both of them at the Alamo Draft House. No, I got uh, the, the soft-cooked, pre- the baked pretzels and some popcorn and a couple of ginger ales. A couple of ginger ales. It's free refills. There you go. Well, I, Tanya is a biopic about the figure skater Tanya Harding who you might know as uh, being something of a phenom in the early 90s of figure skating, and then in a bizarre, mind-boggling scandal, she may or may not have had some involvement in her boyfriend, or her ex-husband, Husband. ex-husband's twice-removed acquaintance, whacking Nancy, fellow rival, figure skating rival Nancy Kerrigan on the kneecap. Uh, and it... She was a really maligned figure because she was banned from figure skating after after this happened. Um, 
And this is a movie that goes back and sort of looks at her childhood and her relationships and what made this person and whether she did it and what is the meaning of truth in these kind of like American crime story type uh, tales, all and done in a very postmodern way, starring uh, Margot Robbie as uh, Tanya Harding, Sebastian Stan as Jeff Giuli, what's his name? Galuli. Galuli, there you go. Uh, and Allison Janney, I think, is... A, gives a quite incredible performance here as uh, uh, Mrs. Harding. <laughs> the se- yeah, the senior Harding. Harding. Yeah. Yeah. This movie is, well, Chanson, you and I were texting about this too, is this movie is sort of, has like a fever dream quality to it. Yes. You know, it's some, it's like Scorsese, like it's like Goodfellas, sort of. Because a lot of reviewers have sort of referenced yeah, the Scorsese influence on this movie. But it also plays like a really funny two-hour trailer to like a much longer, more developed thing. Yes. Like, I almost felt like this movie is, I mean, it's sprawling in its sort of, you know, scope, but it's it may or may not be like only about an inch deep. The haters always say... Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. I was the best figure skater in the world at one point in time. Call out a clean skate. Stop talking to her. That girl is your enemy. Because this movie is so, like, excited to have the camera, like, pull out from Jeff, like, crying on the ground and then, like, track all the way down the driveway into the street, like, into another town. It's like, can we get back to the story? Like, a cool shot, Craig, but, like, let's get back to the story at hand here. Right. This is another movie, kind of like Calling By Your Name, that had that as, as many as two or three months ago. People were just like, oh, I'm strongly anticipating I, Tanya and this reclamation project and a tour de force performance by Margot Robbie. But I think my biggest problem with the movie is that it doesn't give that would-be tour de force the stage that it deserves. What's well, directed by the mind that brought you Mr. Woodcock. And Million Dollar Arm. And Million Dollar Arm, yes. I was like, how do we know Craig Gillespie? And I looked it up. It's like, oh, because we, we reviewed Million Dollar Arm some years ago. That's right. Um, but yeah, it has that sort of... Are you saying that he's not exactly of the pedigree of Marty? Certainly not. I mean, he definitely has... He knows in the back of his mind that he needs to be better than he was in previous movies, mainstream broad comedies and or inspirational Disney sports movies. But and he like is he doesn't better. have he's better, but he just doesn't have the arsenal of vision right. that a like a much better director would have. And if you had like someone with a little more you need like a ten years younger Ryan Johnson, like who will make a name for himself off this like B movie type story ripped from the headlines. But he's just not he's too old and he's too boring to really do anything except like shine a flashlight in your face until it dims out about an hour and 15 minutes into this movie. I'd love to see the Harmony Corinne version of this movie. Yeah. Spring break. Tanya Harding, Tanya Harding. Or 
what about the Sophia Coppola-directed Nancy Kerrigan story? Oh, my God. That would be funny. Because um, Nancy Kerrigan, not really a character in this movie. It's a, a movie that is very fascinated, I think, with um, the smattering of people around Tanya Harding and how they inflect her. But as it gets down the stretch to this well hold on let me stop have you ever seen the 30 have you seen the 30 for 30 about this the price of gold i have not and it's all it seems to me like all of the kind of uh mockumentary talking heads of sebastian stan and uh margot robbie made up to look older come from that documentary because that is a documentary that uh you know has hours and hours of footage with both of them telling these conflicted stories right next to each other and that's kind of what this movie settles on is like do you want the truth there is no truth in America, which feels a little cheap, or is maybe a card you should play all the way at the end of the movie and not over and over and over again. Well, this movie has a lot of weird political cards it wants to play, and I think it lands some of them at good times, but you're right in that some of them like hit you over the nose of like this story from the early nineties really looked at how we'd treat the media in a few years. Right guys. Yeah. And it's like, well, obviously it's like a thing that happened before and now it's now, you know, and this movie is interesting too, because it's almost like this movie is the disaster artist of the 30 for 30 of the documentary about Tanya Harding. Oh, you know, I like that. Yeah, but it's it's a movie about making a documentary about Tanya Harding, essentially. The note it really nails is the mother-daughter relationship between Alice and Janie and, and Tanya Harding and this, this sort of feeling that, like, you know, if you, like, have a pathologically shitty parent, you don't have a shot. Um, and that is both the hopeless comedy of the, of the Janie uh Robbie relationship the uh you fuck dumb you don't marry dumb is what she tells her daughter at her wedding to Jeff right um is almost beyond the pale of black comedy right I think that's something it gets right oh it, it has a really good ear for humor and I think it lands enough stuff that it is ultimately like a pretty entertaining watch mm-hmm but, and I have to say, too, that I'm sure that it was, like, incredibly expensive digital stuff to do this, but the skating sequences as well are pretty amazing. Um, I don't know if I agree. What do you think is amazing about them? Just the fact that they exist, and, like, Margot Robbie's not an Olympic-level figure skater. Yeah. You know, like... I mean, they keep, of course, like the stadiums blurry enough that you can't tell that like they're probably not actually in the Olympics. Right. But I thought the the artifice of like how it the, the choices it made was enough to make me believe that like this is the woman who pulled off these tricks and here I am seeing them done. So, yeah, you know, the facts of the movie's production kind of schooled me on this on this point because I kind of felt like. It was all CGI, and then somebody was like, nope, uh, that is actually Margot Robbie, which is amazing. But I don't, again, coming back to Craig, old man Craig, I don't think the movie is, like, directed to show that. Like, this is a movie about, 
I think it's very hard to make a Tanya Harding movie because it's somebody who's basically a phenom. Is this like figure skating's Mike Tyson? Like somebody who showed up at like 20 and was more naturally gifted than every single person they ever came across but came from the wrong side of the tracks and it ruined them. But right. I think the movie is oddly unconcerned with like her physicality when when you think about when you watch Tanya Harding skate, her physicality is like what there is. It's the story. But I think you're right. because I think Craig Gillespie is not interested in her physicality, which is a shame because Margot Robbie is interested in her physicality. Okay, sure. Like, I, I think it is very apparent when you see, like, other people figure skating that, like, Margot Robbie's making a choice to act a little bit more white trash than them. And she's, like, sort of a stripper out there and not, like, this elegant sort of princess that you're supposed to be and like the script sort of backs that up but you're right in that the directing does not point it out more obviously that you know why she's not getting good marks but I think the performance itself is at a level where it's like I get it her music choices her movements are not graceful here but they're like they're sort of accurate they get the job done for the tricks that's the whole ridiculous thing about figure skating. And I, I think what this movie endeavors to tell you is that figure skating is not a, like, it's almost not a sport. It's sort of a, a, pageant. a pursuit, a pageant, if you will. And what's interesting about Tanya Harding is she's almost the sport's first athlete. Mm, yeah. In a, it, yeah. It's like, what do you do with the person who like tries to win the pageant by dunking when everybody else is like doing you know languid layups in their five thousand dollar costume can we turn to a rating i think that this is a pretty quintessential um bad good i think that there is a lot of wasted potential in this movie where it could have easily been a good good but because you have a pretty like middle of the road director in play what you end up with is a totally serviceable r-rated black comedy akin to like a bad santa or something like that which is i've you know it's dark and it's rated r and it has enough performances that you like chuckle at it and go oh when there's like a parental figure says like the c word or like a bunch of kids or something but uh, yeah, I don't think it has the teeth nor the ambition to be a good good. So yeah, bad good from me. This movie, yes, needs like Patty Jenkins with some of the foresight she had with Monster behind it. Sure. I mean, there there are many examples of people who would be better than Craig Gillespie, uh, including Martin Scorsese himself. But here's so here's my. Uh, I guess my quip, like, this is a movie that thinks it needs to be Goodfellas when really it needs to be Raging Bull. Like, it has to be a movie about the the uh, dark prowess and lack of hope of this singular figure. And instead, in that Scorsese way, it becomes just enamored of the parade of, like, cousins who fucked it up for, like, the main mob boss. It's like, make it about the boss, damn it. Um, right. Yeah, that's the thing, too. And it focuses, I think, too much on the incident, as it calls it. Right. But I have to say, though, that the 
directing and the shooting of the incident itself is like one of the funniest sequences I think I've ever seen. Yes. Where you have this like totally ridiculous guy who is given (laughs) two pieces of advice before he breaks, um, what's her name? Nancy Kerrigan's knee is that if you don't make, don't think anything. And if you don't make eye contact with someone, they can't identify you. Hilarious. And then the fact that he like can't figure out that there's a chain around that door. So he just goes through it with his face. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie that I want to be better. And I think the yes. world wants to be better. People were so excited. And I think this Margot Robbie performance is good. But I think that I, Tanya is bad good. I'm glad that you agree. Yep. Uh... How about we head to another movie that we'll probably agree about? Because what other option is there? Um, right. This was Netflix's first attempt at like a blockbuster budget. Ninety million dollars. Ninety million dollars for Bright. Ninety million dollars to make one's two, one's Netflix's Bright. You talked about Bright in one of your year end lists. I believe it was the movies that didn't know it was two thousand seventeen. Yeah, most politically tone deaf movies, and I had put that movie on the put this movie on the list before I'd even seen it. Right, and I was not wrong even by a little bit. No, you were not. So this movie is essentially Training Day mixed with Lord of the Rings. That is the elevator pitch for this movie. You have a very bleak, sort of hyper present Los Angeles, but instead of it just being racially insensitive stereotypes battling for control of the streets, you have racially insensitive stereotypes and wizard stuff battling for control of the streets. And in the focus of this movie is Will Smith's character, um, Daryl Ward, who is the partner of the first orc police officer a veritable orc jackie robinson if you will and the police force and the lapd joel edgerton almost unrecognizably so uh, probably for his own benefit <laughs> as nick jacoby more makeup david put more on <laughs> yeah and yeah, they so in the first scene, um, after this insufferable opening title sequence, uh, you see that Will Smith has been shot by an orc in the chest, and he's but he like wakes up months later and he's fine, but he's like kind of edgy about getting shot again because people have been targeting him, and he he doesn't quite trust the um, you know the allegiance of Nick uh, Nick Jacoby. Um, because like, he feels like there's like the orcs have this blood oath or something, but don't you see his teeth chance? They've been filed down. He's been unblooded. So he is a loyal police officer. Everybody's just trying to get along and have a good life. All of the races are different. Just cause they're different. Doesn't mean anybody's better or worse than anybody. Hey, uh, where's the diversity hire? I got a dude in my car. I didn't ask for it, but the whole world is watching. What? Okay, you don't like me. Man, I'm not out here to be your friend. I need to know if shit pop off that you got my back. 
Okay. And then meanwhile, we have this bigger plot going on where these rogue elves and the elves in this movie are like the 1%. This movie just deals in political and social and racial stereotypes. So elves are, I have a big theory about this movie that it is um, David Ayer and Max Landis's attempt to understand the current political climate. And for them, the elves are the like elite 1%, but the elite 1% is not like the actual like old, you know, Coke brother sort of white guy, baby boomer contingent that it actually is. What it actually is, is the like, movie Hollywood sort of liberal media that is the 1%. And we are all like the gay elves who are just like in our very specific urban settings, like pulling all the strings because we get all of our wishes granted. And here's David Ayer, who's like, you know, Hollywood foray has not really been embraced by, you know, mainstream Hollywood. And then you have Max Landis, the son of John Landis, who made Animal House, Fried Green Tomatoes, all that, and was sort of kicked out because he uh, didn't go by union rules and because of that, uh, killed an actor on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. And so Max Landis has enough connections to sort of survive but like he hasn't been fully embraced his scripts, including, you know, uh, American, um, what is it called? American ultra et al and Chronicle have not been embraced by mainstream Hollywood. And for some reason, these guys are the police officers and they just want to be understood. But what this movie's actually saying is that, the life experience that these two privileged men have had has led them to one of the more tone deaf cop and fairy tale allegories that maybe has ever been produced in modern cinema. And I'll come right out and say it, not only the worst movie that I've seen in recent memory, but also easily the most racist Yeah, I can't think of a worse movie that we've done for the podcast, honestly. It's You can't think of a worse movie? Not that we've done for the podcast. It's staggeringly sure. bad. The, and it's not even like funny bad. No, well that's what I think is that it's very rare to see a movie this bad that is not inherently bad good in some way. And the way sure. that it's funny to see the YouTube person trip on the grapes when they're stomping them into wine. Most bad movies have a nugget of just like, this is so ridiculous that I do get some pleasure from it. And this movie takes itself so seriously and has right. so much money behind it and has so few entertaining performances that it manages a kind of bad badness that we rarely see. Oh, it's, it's an unprecedented, I think, bad badness. Um, I just think it's so funny. If we can take for a microcosm here, um, the performance by Enrique Murciano, who I liked in Bloodline, and he plays like the Mexican gang leader, Poison. He was one of my uh, Without a Trace favorites from way back. Oh, yeah, that's right. He wasn't Without a Trace. But anyway, he plays this wheelchair-bound Mexican crime boss. Right. 
And his performance can only be described as inspired by Jonah Hill's sort of comical, like Mexican crime boss character from 22 Jump Street. And it's just amazing to have uh, an Hispanic actor like do this performance without any sense of like satire. Right. Or irony. Because it's so, yeah. Or, or irony because it's just so offensive in that it is a, not only a stock character, but a racial stereotype of sort of a Latin King who like down to like the whispery, like, Hey man kind of voice that and this movie thinks that's totally acceptable in this hyper realism that it's going for, which is horrifying. And the fact that this movie not only has its in like the opening shot has this production card called Trigger Warning Productions. Yep. But then not ten minutes into the movie, Will Smith kills a fairy that's like messing with his bird feeder and says, Fairy lives don't matter. Yep. This movie is like, it's like a Trump person movie. And I was so offended by this movie that I was looking on Twitter and it seems like the only people coming to its defense are the people who live their lives thinking that these incorrect social stereotypes are true. And those people are like, make America great again, people. And I know that we sort of keep away from politics from the most part on this, in this movie, but this movie is a movie designed to entertain people who voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. And that's people who are only comfortable with other races if they understand them as violent stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they can have more sympathy for orcs than they can have for Latino Americans. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you're going to be, like, quote-unquote inventive as to force these, like, two unlikely you know, setups and tropes into one. The interesting thing to play with is not the, oh, look how marginalized the orc is while we keep other working class people like exactly where they've remained since the beginning of these sort of crime movies. Right. Can we talk about Will Smith? Yeah, of course. Because this is one of those movies. Wait, what was my, what did we do this with a few weeks ago? Oh, Austin Powers. Um, sure. It's one of those movies where, you know, by the hour and 10 minute mark, I was like, I need to let my eyes glaze over and just think about Will Smith's career for the next hour. Um, That's what, yeah, I, th- that was one of the tacks that I used to get through this movie too. Because he's, it's fully off the rails, right? This, his choices I are so disagree. Bad. Well, I disagree that it's off the rails. I think it's so... You know how, like, sometimes on Be Real Guys, we give out the uh, most actor award? Yeah. I feel like this is the least acting, this is the least role for Will Smith in that he's just using lines he said in different movies. Yeah. And they, like, just let the camera roll and, like, see what works. But instead of, like, sensibly editing out, like, these insufferable car conversations, they just, like, let them ramble and, like, improv. But these are not, like, Judd Apatow people. This is Will Smith and Joel Edgerton, like, sweating his nuts off in this orc costume. You're right, though. The, really, if you, if you... If somebody discovered tomorrow that every Will Smith line uttered here is in uh, iRobot... After Earth and the two Bad Boys movies, 
you'd be like, oh, and yeah. Independence Day and like any other role that he's had as an action hero. Enemy of the state. Yes. So this made me think that I I'm lo- I was looking back at his IMDb and being like, what what broke Will Smith? Why are we here? I mean, he's obviously was in some, he's been in bad movies since he's been working, but he's also been in some very good movies and given some quite good performances. I, my theory is that around the time of Pursuit of Happiness, I Am Legend, and Seven Pounds, which is like 06 to 08, he became so fascinated with the idea of suffering because all of those movies are essentially about somebody suffering and dignity that no human should have to, right? Sure. That ever since then, every choice he's made seems to reflect a want to hold... The characters are holding the movie at an arm's length. I mean, like, this guy, Daryl Ward, goes through every conceivable fucking kind of uh, pain and mess imaginable in this movie, but it has nothing to do with him. It doesn't affect the character at all. I think Will Smith is like almost scared to feel. Yeah, I think you're I think you're you're quite right. Um I just think that this I mean like he's something has happened to this this guy that he's like no longer in touch with like what's audiences are like looking for and what they liked about his performances in Independence Day and you know like Hitch or, or Men in Black Men in the Black original is or Bad kind Boys. of an analog for but, this movie but it's so much better but what I don't understand about Will Smith is like he'll agree to do this and like uh, Men in Black 3 but he won't do Independence Day Resurgence like, what do you... Like, that movie was bad, I'll give you, but, like, it wasn't unwatchably bad. Mm-hmm. Like, what about this one? He's like, I'm going to do Bright. I'm going to do Bad Boys 4, which he has coming out in 2019. Right. This movie's very unconcerned with, like, women, too. Yep. Well, not not elf women that kill, like, men. That's the strange thing, too, is, like, there are these scenes that go on for days of Joel Edgerton and Will Smith talking, yet Numi Rapace maybe has two lines, and I think they're both in Elvish. At one point... Or one of them's in in Spanish, too, when she's killing that baby. (laughs) When she's killing that poor Mexican baby. Um, I don't think we have to talk about this movie too much more. It's, uh... It's, this movie is awful. It's really, really bad. Um, I hated that. Yes. And just aesthetically, aesthetically, the idea of, you know, why don't we put Harsh Times and Suicide Squad together? It's just like, it's, a, it's, it's such a monochromatic, dirty movie for so much of it. And then all of a sudden, here comes like this Sorcerer's Apprentice style, like, pool of light oh that oh that unspeakably bad like shootout scene when it like goes to like a weird slowed down version of a pop song about british people yeah and it's like why why did we choose this music cue it kind of has that watchmen problem a little bit where it's just like how do you do with something that like seeks to be gritty and also seeks to be a cartoon like there's a reason why it like exists on a page and not in a movie right yeah this this movie is a travesty and of course they've like already greenlit a sequel to it where hopefully we meet the uh the dark lord 
mentioned Dark Lord. Uh, I texted you that's like the best thing about this movie is they keep talking about a Dark Lord who wants to destroy humanity. But hold on. He wants to enslave part of it, too. And yet, thank God, we never meet this Dark Lord. But I'm sure we will. Just his minions in this one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we will in Brighter. I will not. I watched this movie because I, like, felt a weird need to. But I can assure you I will not watch the sequel. Oh, yeah. And I suggest you don't watch this movie. I feel like people are watching it out of morbid curiosity. And that's why it's been so popular. But it's... It's vulgar. It's a vile film. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree. My compulsion is comes from the omnipresence of Netflix in our lives. And the idea that Netflix got like one of the most bankable movie stars of the last quarter century and is finally put out something that, you know, it would hope would make $200 million if it put it in theaters feels like, okay, I have to check this out because this is such a big swing for them. But... No, you don't. Bad, bad. No question about it, bad, Absolutely. bad. Loathsome, loathsome. Um, my friend. Legit, if I don't talk to you, uh, Happy New Year. I wish you have a, a blessed 2018. It can't be worse than 2017. Nope. But I hope it's filled with uh, even more movie watching and discussion. Sounds good, man. I'll talk to you later. Yes.